the people of sake actually brought me into sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history. And... Welcome and thanks again for tuning this week to Sake on Air, the world's very first podcast dedicated to expanding the dialogue around Japan's iconic beverages of sake and shochu. My name is Justin Potts and I am one of your regular hosts over here at the show. This week we're back with another Okawari episode. A lot of the interview material from a lot of our episodes here at Sake on Air actually winds up on the cutting room floor, but some of it is really just too good to let go to waste. With the Okawari series, we like to raise a glass for a second round of information and insight from our past guest interviews and serendipitous encounters that we just didn't get enough of the first time around. This week's Okawari welcomes back three very special guests. First up is Ms. Ayako Yamaguchi, who joined us back on episode 55 in order to discuss Fushimi Sake. In this segment, Ayako shares with us a little bit of historical context surrounding this relationship between the sake-making trifecta of the Kansai region, as well as discusses some of the challenges of researching for such deep and vast historical topics. Next up, we're rejoined by Water, Wood, and Wild Things author Hannah Kirshner from episode 58. Hannah's book is about a great deal more than just sake and to fully appreciate the role of sake both in the book as well as in general, it's really many of those seemingly peripheral components that are actually just as central, if not even more important. In this part of the interview, Hana shares with us her relationship with food and cooking as part of her life in Yamanaka and how that wound up manifesting itself in the book. We also discuss the wonderful range of expressions for the word water in Japanese, as well as the similarities between the worlds of tea and sake. And lastly, we once again hear from Xavier Tsuza, who joined us back on episode 53 to share with us the process of developing and hosting the world-class sake competition that is Kura Master. However, Xavier had some very provocative food for thought when the topic of terroir came up in relation to sake. So with that, we'll go ahead and jump into this week's show, starting off with a visit or a revisit from Ayako Yamaguchi. Information about sake tends to be either ambiguous. Oh, yes. Or, <laughs> or, or contradictory. Oh, yes, um, yes, yes. Like there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of very definitive no. uh, answers to a lot of questions. So you yeah. end up with a lot of a lot of information mm-hmm. with a lot of things that are either mm-hmm. still somewhat vague or oh, unclear. Oh yes, yes. A lot of things that are all contradictory. Yeah, I can relate to that really so much. Been, <laughs> you, does, <laughs> does, does that speak to your experience in researching Fushimi at all? Oh yes. Yeah. So. So first of all, it's very difficult to write, uh, you know, kind of, you know, the throughout history on Fushimi because everything is like scattered around everywhere. Um, something sake related, something are not. Um, so, um, first of all, what I did about Fushimi was to look up the, uh, chronological history. Uh, am I right? And, um, the, the word. Uh, chronological history book, which the sake, uh, Fushimi Sake Association have. I borrowed that. Um, so I read it through. It was a kind of a big book, right? Very thick, very big. But um, I read, uh, um, read it wrong. Um, so then I have a lot of questions, regards, like what's written, you know, some, something what's written, but which is ambiguous. I, go deep into the point and then do some research wherever it is um no matter what uh, no matter how it is related to sake or how uh, some are not you know some so you go into the point and get my conclusion so um if you want to write my article i have to be responsible on what i take as a theory right um because you know if you 
if you write it in Ojo, there is something that uh, said like that in this history book. In this history book, it says like that. You know, it, if you make it a list, it's not interesting. So I kind of take a plunge to select just one which appeals to me the most. So um, I select the pieces which interest me most and which helps me to, you know, construct um, or reconstruct or construct the, the whole idea of what happened and what's happening in Fushimi. Or it's, it can be done in other world, uh, other area, like in Nada or anywhere. You wrote an article about Koji, didn't you? Just oh, recently. yes, yes, yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. So it's um, about Muromachi period, yeah. Yeah, the Koji Wars. If yeah, you, that's you, right, you know. that's right. So, so that was uh, that was later in the history, but it's very fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. The the, the Muromachi history, Muromachi Koji and uh, Sake history are very fascinating. But that's another story, actually. Yeah, story. Yeah. We'll, we'll save we'll save that for another. Oh, yeah, so yeah. we'll kind of yeah. set that aside. Oh, yeah, I told you we go down rabbit holes in this show. <laughs> oh so yeah, it's, a, it's it's okay. A common yeah, yeah, occurrence. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Um, so he was actually, ah, so sorry. Um, um, not related to sake directly, but, um, in the ancient era of Heia, the, the aristocrat had a aristocratic resort around the, the lake Ogura, um, which is called Shigetsu no Oka, Shigetsu Hills. Um, so, which was built around like uh, 20th, 20th century or something like that. It, it was in the pictures and the, uh, it was very famous uh, aristocratic resort. Because the samurai class gained power and the aristocrats um, lost their power, um, lost their influence, um, that kind of legend just came kind of a, the, the legend which has been already um, um, uh, conveyed from people to people. But, uh, Toyotomi Hideyoshi wanted to be, uh, a very high rank aristocrat or even a, even a king because he want, he kind of un unified, uh, Japan, um, after the severe civil war. And they were, he had a very strong, Desire to become the aristocrat, aristocratic, you know, uh, they, he wanted to be high class. So one of the things he thought up was to have a, have a castle built there, which was known to be a very high class aristocratic resort by the, the Lake Ogura. So, what he did was, of course, um, he wasn't thinking about that only. Um, he knew that Fushimi was a kind of a transportational hub and very strategically important to grasp both, grasp, uh, grasp both Kyoto and Osaka. Um, so they were kind of on a verge of disappearing from history, uh, just before Meijera. One reason is that, um, because Nada became so popular, the, the, the sake district aside, um, aside Nada, there is, uh, the sake, uh, sake district called Itami, which we have an airport right now, yeah. and uh, the domestic airport right now. And so, um, actually, Itami was older than the Nada district, but the Nada was raising up. And so the Itami lost the sales to the Tokyo, the, to Tokyo. And so what Itami did was, um, the, to, um, complain to the owner of it, uh, owner or the lord of Itami, who was relative of the emperor. Um, so, the, they were called Konoeke. Konoeke is uh, up to now a very powerful, um, um, regent family to imperial family. And so what they did, um, the Itami did what to, hey, please sell Itami sake at the imperial capital by your power. 
So, the, what the, the, Konoeke did was to kick out all the fushimi sake. And, and um, uh, officially. But there were illegal sake, which was cheap and good. But, um, if you go to, like, any old sake shop, there are, the Kyoto hasn't, um, suffered from the, the air raid, air raid of the World War Two. So there are a lot of, um, pre, pre-war sake shops. And you can see the, the signboard. Well, sometimes you can say in the city, you can see the signboard of the, the sake shop. And sometimes very interesting to see, um, they show itami sake, not the fushimi sake. So, the, um, uh, sake was so popular or the so powerful in Kyoto, actually. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. Um, it, it's a little bit outside of today's, you know, yeah, 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 discussion yeah. or the notes, but uh, that relationship with cuisine, I think, is important, particularly in the context of Kyoto, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the most, I say, the most iconic, mm-hmm. um, Foods and cuisine, oh, yes, and yes, yes. food products um, yeah, that were yeah. developed or seem to have be, have really come into form um, around the Edo period, mm-hmm. and a lot of that due to you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. Uh, the presence in in Kyoto and in that area. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Kyoto being a little bit different. Oh, yes, Kushimi yes, culturally. Yes. I'm sort of curious. What do you have any ideas to what that sake and food sort of relationship was like? Um, at that time when that culture, when that food culture was really booming and developing? I think, you know, in the Edo period, people, oh, uh, in the beginning of the Meiji period, like in Gion, um, people drank, people had like shirayuki or, you know, nitami sake. But uh, because the fushimi sake has been um, um, doing a very good work on the, the national contest and they have the very good quality, that eventually the people in Gion and the the, the, the people in the, uh, the old cuisine um, take up the fushimi sake as to pair with the the their own cuisine so you know so, so that's something happening uh that that was something happening after the major major revolution i think but still they are in, enjoying the the same image as well i think it's all the water isn't it i mean my, my kind of yeah, yeah, my yeah. kind of feeling about the difference between fushimi and Manada, for oh, example, yeah, yeah. is is very much the water. Very much that the water. difference in yeah, water yeah. not only influences the sake production, and and it's kind of like which one came first, the chicken or the beer. <laughs> um, but you know, it influences the cuisine as well because you know when you're preparing the cuisine, you're using the oh, same yes, water. That's right. you know, that's something right. as something as simple as tea. Mm-hmm. If you look at tea in in Kyoto mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. compare it to tea mm-hmm. in, uh, I don't know if they have tea in that, or I assume they do. They if do. you were to compare <laughs> it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, I'm sure you would see the same difference mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. tea because, you know, I mean, a lot of the water that's used mm-hmm. to make sake and fushimi oh, yeah. is used to make tea as well, right? Oh, yes, right? of course. The uji is oh, very yes, famous, yes, isn't it, yes, for, yes. for tea production. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think they're very intertwined. Next, we jump into our conversation with Water, Wood, and Wild Things author, Hannah Kirshner. One thing you mentioned in the book, and I thought that this was really, really interesting. Um, you talk about, you mentioned the way that Japan has so many expressions for water. Yeah. And I had never realized that actually, that's something that had never, that just, I never clicked. And the second I read it, I was like, of course, like that's completely accurate. And it's a lot of things sort of started to make sense all of a sudden. I mean, Japan has a lot of very, I would say very colorful language it doesn't necessarily get used a lot, but there's a lot of it out there. You can get into a lot of very nuanced specificity um, with a lot of different words. And water, as you said, has so many different expressions. And I found that, I don't, I don't know if this is a question or not. I just found that fascinating because the second I read it, it was like, it was like a light bulb just clicked. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was in the tea chapter. So there's also a chapter in Water, Wood and Wild Things about in the water mm-hmm. section about um, taking tea ceremony lessons. Yeah. And um Oyu is hot water, and uh, one name for tea ceremony is, is cha no yu, so like the, the hot water for tea, essentially. Yeah. And then, of course, Yamanaka has the onsen, the hot spring, that's also Oyu, the hot water. Yeah. Um, 
but then yeah there's different words for water for cold water for drinking or yeah. pure water for washing your hands yeah <laughs> um and yeah it's very poetic and it just sort of shows how important water is in yeah, all these just, different aspects right? and certainly in the sakagura too right absolutely was uh-huh. was water was that was that a key word from the beginning or was that something that came up later the, on or how did the sections existed from the beginning okay um yeah i knew water wood and wild things and cultivation would be the four okay. sections of the book okay. um finding the right title <laughs> was yeah. hard actually yeah. we went through many many versions of what yeah. the title should be before finally setting on settling on a very simple title that yeah. refers to the, the, the sections of the book but really i mean those are sort of the essential expressions of this place it's you know in the mountains so those are the resources water is that you know you have the river you have the springs for the water for um, for drinking water and for the water for making sake from the aquifer um, you have the onsen the natural hot springs um, and then wood of course like you're surrounded by forest there's trees like that is the resource and then wild things it's you know the things you can collect the food wild foods and hunting and um and then cultivation that didn't make it into the title because you know it just doesn't sound as good it doesn't have the same ring to it water (laughs) wood and wild things is fine and And cultivation um, footnote (laughs) but but but, you know that sort of brings it all together in a way so so cultivating rice and vegetables and then also cultivating community yeah Absolutely. Well, it's, I mean, it's that, that human element is, I think that's a huge part of it, right? I mean, from cultivation, working the land, there are a lot of instances in Japan where the, the act of people's involvement in the land actually improves the quality of the land in, in a lot of real measurable and tangible ways, you know, from what it is they're making from the land as well as all of the other things that then come from that, whether it's, you know, cultural or is it community driven or ritual or whatever. Um, Sure. Yeah. I mean, in rural Japan, I think it's fading, but there is a really different way of relating to the land than what I was familiar with from the West, or at least the (laughs) post-colonial U.S., where I I think this exists in indigenous cultures in a lot of places, but that like forest isn't only protected or exploited that Mm. there is actually a different way where you are part of the ecosystem and your activities can negatively or positively affect that ecosystem so like satoyama is the the village forest and it's this idea that by harvesting certain things you're also making it possible for other things to grow or that you you are you're stewarding that landscape at the same time Mm. as you're enjoying it as a source of food and a source of beauty so yeah yeah Absolutely. Well, I mean, that that intervention is a big thing too. I want to come back to sake a little bit. The num the degree, and I mean this in a in a good way. The amount of human intervention in the process of making sake is it's it's significant, right? Right. Actually, a it's a similar that, mentality. Like it's also right? both like harnessing nature, allowing nature to take its course, and also guiding nature. Right. It's it's. I just I feel like there's something there's something really special in there. Yeah. Right. It I really mean, is. It's, it's not, it's not judgmental. Like as uh, I like to tell you when you just, the way you kind of just worded it, you're saying it's not, you're not necessarily destroying or preserving. There is a, there is a middle ground. There is a space in between where the, the larger sort of, I don't know, ecosystem or whatever yeah, I mean, thrives. Look, we're, we're, you know? we're part of nature. So yeah. we're going to affect it one way or another. And like we can choose what kind of effect it's going to have. Food is also a big part of it. Um, I know yeah. food is a big part of your life before um, as well. Do you, how's, 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 how's your, how's your cooking life in, in Yamanaka? Are you, are you cooking regularly? Has your cooking changed? How does food play a role in your life uh, in, in Yamanaka? Well, writing has definitely <laughs> interfered. with the creative energy that I have left to put into cooking. So my cooking has become a lot more simple. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, I may have painted a picture of this very idealistic life where I'm growing vegetables (laughs) and rice and like eating uh, meat and fish that my friends hunted and captured um, 
but yeah. I also eat a lot of cup noodle from the convenience yeah. store. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, well, you'll understand this also being from Washington State that like Washington has such a long history of um, Asian immigrants and particularly the Japanese community that came over 100 years ago, like at the end of the 1800s really has had such an influence on the culture of the Pacific Northwest, as well as Chinese and Vietnamese and Cambodian and Hmong yeah. communities. Yeah. Like there's a lot of, but but um, I feel like in Seattle, that the Japanese influence is especially prominent. You see it in gardens and architecture and, and food. So like even in North Bend, this like mm. little tiny town, yeah. um, at our supermarket, we could get yakisoba and udon. And yeah. um, those were things that I grew up with. And then like, going into the city in Seattle and going to Uwajimaya, which is yeah. the huge Japanese supermarket. So I think cooking and eating Japanese food isn't that much of a shift. I'm also married to a Japanese man, but who, okay. um, he grew up in Tokyo and has lived in the U.S. his whole life. So actually, he's in New York most of the time while I'm okay. in, in Yamanaka. But we do when we are in the same place, which is how we would like things to be more in the yeah. future. We, yeah. we, you know, We cook and eat a lot of Japanese food, too, or even if it's not specifically Japanese dishes that's certainly like the vernacular that he cooks in yeah so when I'm in Yamanaka I pretty much exclusively eat Japanese food because the quality of ingredients and accessibility of ingredients for like non-Japanese food is they're they're bad and expensive existent yeah either I can't get them or they're bad or or they're expensive yeah so but the quality of local ingredients is incredible the fish and the vegetables i mean like you know every once in a while you have that moment where you like eat a carrot and you're like oh this is what a carrot is actually supposed to taste like <laughs> when it tastes good like yeah. just you don't need yeah. to do anything to it yeah yeah um so yeah like and also it's a very easy way to cook to be like i'm gonna make rice in my i at some point during writing the book i bought a rice cooker like i love making rice in a donabe in a clay Mm -hmm. pot it's i love that whole process but there's something very nice about you press the button (laughs) and like when you get home from work or when you finish what you're doing your rice is ready yeah so i have my rice make some miso soup with like whatever i have around like um and then yeah maybe a piece of fish or tofu or some vegetable dish yeah so yeah yeah and it's, I learned yeah. a lot from like friends here. Like there's a little vegetable shop mm. right near my apartment and she gets, she's a vegetable sommelier, which I thought was just something she'd made up, but it is, it is an actual certification. Yeah. yeah. And so. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a sommelier for everything. <laughs> yeah. So, so she's an actual vegetable sommelier and I can yeah. go in there and she'll tell me like what, how to cook something, what to season it with. And she gets a lot of like really small amounts of things from local farmers or that people have foraged and then. Um, I mean, anybody who reads Water, Wood, and Wild Things will see there's like a whole chapter on foraging. So, yeah. um, which is also something that I grew up with, grew up with in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. And so, um, it was once I learned to recognize the specific things I could forage here, that became part of what I eat yeah. too. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Recipe, recipes take up a, a good chunk of it as well too. And one thing that I thought was really it was really interesting and enjoyable to read is that you've got some, there are some recipes in there that are just like, these are just great. And anybody, if you're at home and you've got access to some miso, that's like the thing you should just try to recreate this because it's just great where there are some things in there that are just hyper specific to where you're at. Yeah. And that probably even if they were to try and Google this thing, they might not find a picture or they wouldn't, might not find a good one, you know, if you're trying to Google it in English, you know? Right. Um, and so they're going to have no point of reference for what this is. They're probably never going to get to try it. They, they have no word. But I'm just, I'm curious. I love that they were in there. I love yeah. that those recipes were in there. And I'm just sort of curious what sort of your, yeah, just sort of your thought process and sort of selecting the different recipes and what was sort of running through your mind when you're thinking, how, how am I going to communicate this? Yeah. So there's a recipe at the end of each chapter in Water, Wood, and Wild Things. And recipes can serve a lot of different purposes. For me, the recipes were there for storytelling. They are part of the narrative. They're not just like tacked on. And so I think if you're doing like a straightforward cookbook, it's a service. Like they need to be useful. That's the point. Like, but this isn't Japanese cooking 101. Like th- that book exists. There's many wonderful books that do that. Elizabeth Ando's books, I wholeheartedly recommend. Um, 
recipes can also serve to document or archive a culture and a place, a moment in time. Um, they can tell you something about a, the person who cooks them, the place that they're from. And so, of course, I did want to include some recipes, like you said, that are that are useful that people can recreate because people aren't going to necessarily be get, being able to duplicate my experiences in Yamanaka. They may not be able to see or experience the same things, but that's something that they can access is like mm -hmm. making the midnight fried chicken, which is my recipe for karaage yeah. um, or like the onigiri um, rice balls, or uh, there are a few that are, that are, that are very like wherever yeah. you are in the world, you should be able to get those ingredients yeah. and make that. Yeah. But like the skull, I think you mentioned, yeah. which is the pickled um, akazuki, which is, it's the stalks of satoimo, which is taro. It's a corn. Yeah. yeah. Taro or like it has, I mean, it actually grows all over the world. So it has different mm -hmm. names in the Caribbean and mm -hmm. in, in Southeast Asia, but this particular one in this area has red stalks instead of yeah. green and mm -hmm. it's pickled. It's like a vinegar pickle. Yeah. And um, yeah, you will like almost not see that outside of Yamanaka, certainly not outside of Ishikawa. Yeah. <laughs> and that's cool. I mean, like, like yeah. you said, I mean, I guess I found it sort of frustrating sometimes when I first moved here that like, I would see these foods, they exist, um, but I can't Google it. It's not that yeah. I can't find it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so especially in English. Right. So, it's, it's, it's so wild that there's, that there are very, how do you say, there are realities that are shared by a reasonably large population of people that are totally out there and totally available that just nobody's bothered to yeah to share, to go out of their way, to share it in the means that a lot of people are just accustomed to getting information. Like there's yeah. still a well, huge Well, I mean, sometimes I think that the people that are making it just take it for granted. They don't think it's yeah. interesting. Yeah. And absolutely. yeah, or like, you know, because it's not going to be accessible to everybody, it doesn't, it doesn't get documented. I was talking with a, um, a chef up in Yamagata recently and just, and basically his thing, he's, and He's got, you know, he's got some restaurants in Tokyo and different places. And basically his philosophy is like, everybody's got Google now. He said, I go up, I go walk in. Everybody, everybody, everybody already has that information, right? They're sharing yeah. that information. I go up, I walk in the mountains, I smell things, I taste things, I pick things, I bring them back. And then I tell, then, then, then I can go tell people my, that's, that's my experience. That's what I can, you know, that's yeah. my, con that's my contribution, you know, because yeah. nobody else is doing it. You know. The other thing, though, that happens with Google and recipes is it's like it kind of this game of telephone. I've noticed this, especially mm -hmm. with Japanese food, like there will be one source, somebody mm -hmm. that put it in a cookbook or put it online mm -hmm. and everybody else in English kind of riffs off of that recipe. And so that mm -hmm. becomes the recipe for a certain dish. Interesting. <laughs> and like actually you know, if it's home cooking, it's as, it's as varied as the number of households yeah. that make it. Yeah, <laughs> There's not, absolutely. That's not the way to make it. Or sometimes yeah. it's like a chef interpretation, which is actually very different than how people make it at home. But yeah, what that chef you were talking to says like really resonates with me. I think coming yeah. to Yamanaka really reminded me how there are still so many things that you, you can't just find on Google. You have to experience with your own senses. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, but I do want to touch on tea a little bit um, because you spent a lot of time doing a tea ceremony. And as you pointed out in the book, maybe tea ceremony isn't the best word to explain what, what that is. And I, when you said that, I, I went, not a hold on. I was like, okay, you're, you're, you know, I, I, I could very much, I, I, I agree with that, um, with that sentiment. Sure. It's really um, like, it's really more of a practice or a path. Yeah. yeah. Ceremony yeah. sometimes has, although it can be a celebration, that kind of ceremony, I think sometimes implies yeah. something different than yeah. like a practice or a path. Totally. Totally. Which totally. the Japanese captures better, like chado or sado, like tea path. Yeah. Absolutely. Or cha no yu, hot water for tea, which is more right. poetic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm curious, did you find any similarities between the world of tea and the world of sake? Yeah, I mean, so learning tea ceremony, and that's something I've continued to actually, I still go to tea lessons, and I'm still terrible at it, I feel, but um, that's why it's a path. <laughs> it takes, <laughs> just stay on the path. Um, uh, yeah, it's a real discipline. But anyway, um, 
I mean, I sort of mentioned this talking about Shimoki-san's bar, how there's like this care that goes into everything and, and somehow learning and practicing tea started to make that more clear to me, like where that comes from, because in tea, there's like, there's a procedure for everything, even preparing for the guests before they arrive and like cleaning up after they leave, which they will never see, but there's still a way to do it. And you derive meaning out of doing that process, out of doing it with care, even if nobody sees it. Um, so I sort of saw that as like tea mentality um, pervading all these different aspects of life in Japan. Um, although that tea mentality is really rooted in Buddhism and my friend Takeshi Watanabe, um, mm -hmm. um, oh, he's a professor of Japanese studies or at East, uh, East Asian studies at Wesleyan, by the way. Okay. So, and he pointed out to me that um, really what I was calling tea is like more uh, Buddhism. <laughs> Yeah. the idea that like every process has a meaning or that like um yeah that you like derive meaning by taking care with with what mm -hmm. you do there are so many chapters in my book that touch on various fields of expertise that I could not possibly be an expert in all of them so like <laughs> I had woodworkers look at the woodworking chapters I had um all, yeah all these people different people look at chapters and tell me if like like did I use the right language for this like did I say anything about the history that's like totally off base but anyways so um yeah he pointed he pointed that out to me and and definitely I saw that same mentality in the Sakagura too like I mentioned the cleaning being so much part of the work but like the boss is just there right with us doing the cleaning like it's not there's no it's not like that's some like lower work that mm. Um, somebody lower on the totem pole does like everybody does the cleaning because it's an important part of the work. I'm I'm not super well versed in the world of tea. I enjoy it a great deal with an insane amount of regularity, <laughs> but uh -huh. I'm not necessarily you know an expert by any means. But I I every time I visit you know someone who either makes tea or produces tea or somebody who serves tea or who specializes in tea or offers what they call these a, a ceremony or engages in some practice around tea or makes the vessels or the wares tied to tea it all it feels so much like at least for me it feels so close to the world of sake and the experience and I, especially when I start looking at the vessels and the way that people spend time um around it. it 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 feels like it's been like born from the same place it's almost like twins that were born from the same place that have just sort of gone off to do their own thing yeah but I mean, they share it's like they share the same dna it feels very like there's this very clear through line yeah i mean we began with talking about how sake is so much more than the technical details right it's like all the things around it so like the vessels, the way you serve it, the context is all so much part of it too, just as in, in tea. So, yeah. 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 And it was fun in Yamanaka to be able to like really engage with all those different parts of it. The person making the vessel, the person making the sake, the person serving the sake, yeah. the other art, you know, artists consuming the sake, yeah. all of it. It's all connected. So you, you're kind of tapped into the entire ecosystem there is where you could yeah. right, see the rice, grow the get, the, get the rice, make the sake, served at the bar, in the cup, join the, you know, and then, yeah. you know, after they say, you, then you can, you know, you can join everybody for tea, you know, and before it's, before it's, before the yeah. cycle starts again, you know. And you, you pretty can, much just described the concept of my book. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's beautiful. <laughs> one thing, uh, one thing that sort of popped up, which is uh, the reason I thought of this is because it's something that I guess I'm hyper-conscious of and also not conscious of at all at the same time is you, you sort of allude to this ever-present mild level of anxiety that you might screw something up or do something wrong or I don't know if anxiety is necessarily the right word or maybe oh, it's it the is right or isn't word. anywhere. <laughs> is, 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 is that anxiety changed for you over time through your experience? Does it Yes and no. I yeah. mean, part of it is being a foreigner in Japan is that this is not the culture I was born into. And so I don't know all the rules, all the nuances. Yeah. Um, 
But part of it is also just my personality. Like part, uh, some of that is like anxiety that I probably bring to any social situation. <laughs> I mean, I'm a really shy person yeah. actually who yeah. has learned how to fake yeah. it well yeah. to talk to people. Hey, I mean, cheers. I'm I'm very shy cheers and also very curious, <laughs> very curious. So mm-hmm. like, um, you know, and I'm introverted. So it, yeah. it takes a lot of, I really want to know about people and I really yeah. want to talk to them, but yeah. it takes some effort. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I would say some of that certainly has eased as my fluency in both language and culture has has improved, mm. and um, and I have sort of internalized certain aspects of like etiquette or social norms. Part of it is also just becoming more part of a community. And so I know these people are my friends. They like yeah. me. <laughs> if yeah. I do something dumb, they'll still like me. Yeah. It's okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I think there was a lot at stake when I was writing the book because I needed people to trust me enough to continue to allow me to be part of their world and see their work and tell me their thoughts. Yeah. And if I did something so dumb that then they like didn't want me around (laughs) then that was gonna ruin that and I had a deadline and I you know a concept for the book and so yeah there was certainly there was a lot of um press that put extra pressure on it so yeah that actually that reminds me of something I wanted to ask you is so I mean you are writing a book right and so that was you know that's obviously it's out in the open all these people that you're spending time with know that you're writing this book a lot of people in Japan, especially in these, for lack of a better, what more traditional industries or in these more traditional practices, whether it be woodworking or making sake or a farmer or whatever, a lot of people just, even if provided the opportunity to spread the word about whether, well, you know what, I'm okay. They're um, very private. You yeah. know, um, and even you mentioned uh, Matsuda-san, you know, the the head of the, the sake brewer at Shishino Sato, saying that he's had a lot of people come to him over the years, say, hey, we'd love to take your sake overseas, or we'd love to do this or the other thing. And he's generally just been, you know, kind of thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. You've now spent a significant amount of time, you know, with him in the brewery and the people there. You've returned to spend more time there. Yeah. Um, you've established roots there now <laughs> on another level um how and now you're putting a, a book out into the world where obviously you know his brewery is you know very much at the center you know in a or not, maybe not at the center but is is a significant pillar of you know the story and um what you're sharing um so more information is going to get out into the world of people probably a lot i imagine a lot of people that are reading the book or even people who are be you know curious about the experience or on the lookout for new and unique and original things, it's completely reasonable to think that it will lead to more people coming and saying, Hey, can I visit? Or, Hey, can we buy your sake? Or, Hey, where are we going to send it? Have you had that conversation with him or with any of the other people that you worked with about, okay, what happens after this book's published? Yeah. Or what is my relationship or what is our relationship? You know? With- yeah. I mean, it's, it's come up in, indirectly and directly over time like you said everybody knew that I was writing a book I made that clear I mean certain chapters evolved from friendships first but at the point that I knew that I was going to write a chapter about that person like they 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 knew that um so um there are no surprises there I mean it's interesting I think it's two-sided like my presence was also an opportunity for publicity for people like oh there's a foreign lady doing yeah. this stuff and Matsura-san the sake brewer um he and his, his mother in particular was very protective of me actually like when people mm-hmm. wanted to come and do an article well last week finally there was an article um I think the headline was literally foreign woman works in sakegura or foreign woman sake brewery worker mm-hmm. um but, you know, they were very protective of me and, and not having people sort of exploit that as news, which mm. I feel is disrespectful of the people who dedicate their lives to this work. Like, mm. that's newsworthy, not the fact that a foreign lady is coming and doing yeah. it now. And it's also disrespectful of me. Like, yeah. I have more to offer than being the novelty foreign person doing an yeah. activity. So yeah. um, it just made me really uncomfortable both in, yeah, like how it presents me and also as like not 
giving due respect to the people who like really do this work. Yeah. But on the other hand, I think like Yamanaka has been a tourist destination for 1300 years. Like its mm. economy is very much rooted in and based on tourism and it has somehow managed not to be spoiled by that. So mm. I don't think that it's incredible. My if Waterwood and Wild Things is the book that like suddenly brings a bunch of people <laughs> to Yamanaka, I think if they've made it 1300 years without the tourism ruining this place, I certainly hope that that wouldn't either. And if anything, I mean, I think obviously the last year has been really tough economically and people will be excited <laughs> if some, yeah. <laughs> some yeah. attention and, and uh, economic <laughs> resources yeah. start yeah. pouring this way. I mean, it's kind of sad because it's like there's so many towns that actually deserve that attention. I mean, yeah. I picked Yamanaka, but you could lavish this kind of attention on just about any town anywhere in the world and it would yeah. be that interesting if yeah. you really look yeah um yeah i mean i do wonder about that there are certain things like for example i write about the duck hunters that do sakami hunting and this net hunting that's like this rooted in this samurai sport um mm. and if a bunch of people suddenly start showing up at the duck pond wanting to see what they're doing like mm. it will ruin that ecosystem it'll interfere with their sport it will be really disruptive and I was so lucky to get to see as much as I did and I I hope that people will be satisfied with experiencing it through reading that and and be respectful of the fact that like you don't get to do everything yeah and and even I like I mean again I after spending a winter going out with them every few days hunting yeah I wanted to do it too yeah (laughs) but uh there's no women allowed and like I'm not the right person to change that so um yeah yeah. (laughs) so I don't get to keep doing it either yeah but that's okay it's not it's not for me to change that's wonderful and last but certainly not least we jump back into our conversation with Xavier Tsuza to learn a little bit about what he thinks is really holding sake back from preserving its soul and authenticity. Um, talking about the different parts of Japan, with Kuramaster, have you at any time felt, as I should say, inspired or pressured to explore sake by regional category in any sort of way in that sort of expression? I mean, you, you did the omachi or the Yamada Nishiki, so looking at rice types, has regional expression ever been part of um, the conversation? And how do you think about that or approach that? For me, I I think uh, it's difficult to have an authentic, uh, how can I say that? Um, The soil, the terroir of sake, of course, you know, it's the rice for the flavors sometimes. It's the river water for the tactile sensation. But it's the man. And with this third thing, the man, it's complex because we have the role of the yeast. For me now, the yeast, we feel so much the yeast in the Japanese sake. So we don't have the real soul of sake because of the yeast. You know, we have some uh, brewery, we have uh, own, uh, the own um, yeast, but it's very rare. Uh, the government control the production with the yeast, of course, because they give the yeast. So it's a main problem for me because we lose, we are losing the spirit of sake because of the yeast. So the man is the only person who can uh, control that. For example, um, I tested uh, for Kura Master all the omachi, it was on my table. Honestly, uh, I I don't feel so much the real identity of Omachi, maybe on 20 or 30% of the sake. The rest, by the yeast. It was only the yeast, banana, uh, white flowers, but uh, very fermentation uh, nose because of the yeast. So it's complex to say and to speak about uh, that. For me, this is the same thing when we speak about the polishing ratio. Uh, is it uh, okay to polish so much? Uh, I'm not sure. 
Of course, I love the Daigin joke, clean and pure, easy to sell. It's uh, easy to, to speak about sake, of course. But, you know, in the wine, you, you, you put the grape, everything is in the skin. All the composition of uh, flavors are in the skin. And in the rice, of course, the skin of the rice go down. So we lose the identity from this moment, I think. I tested uh, a neon shoe from um, uh, Tanaka Shuzo in Imeji, uh, polished uh, uh, 90%. I, I love that sake. Oh my God, I'm so, I'm so pleased. It was um, a revelation for me because for the first time, I tested an authentic Yamada Nishiki, 90% polishing ratio. I never... Uh, Yeah. tested that so uh, yeah they're, they're amazing and they, they grow their own rice as well so it's complex to to say um, just in the, the way of promotion of the right uh, philosophy uh, to, to have an authentic Nihonshu it will be the next problem and in few years uh, when we speak about uh, authentic Japanese sake uh, because of the polishing ratio because of the yeast So for the moment, uh, I can say just joker, <laughs> if I can, uh, because it's a long, long problem. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, do you, does that, you know, good or bad aside, I think, you know, everybody, as you said, it's something that a lot, everyone is think a lot of people are thinking about right now. Um, does that necessarily hurt Sake's ability to grow and flourish in the market as an international beverage? If, for example, it doesn't have that quote-unquote, regionality or that terroir in the same way, does that necessarily hurt it? Mm. Um, and if not, what are those, you know, what what becomes the selling point to you? What, what is its driving force? I mean, I, mean, I, I guess, guess it's, it's the, the things that you named, is, you know, you feel like it has the potential to be a, you know, a leading um, product on the market. But I'm, I'm just curious, curious, does that necessarily hurt it as a category if it doesn't have those things? Yeah, for sure. Uh, the system, uh, so I see something really interesting about the GI. You know, this year, uh, Arima arrived and uh, Mie arrived as a GI. And I saw um, many people now want to taste sake of Mie, sake of Arima, Nadagogo, Yamagata, Akusan, because they have a specific uh, thing to, 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 to tell, you can say. It's the same system of uh, French wine or the other country, but why French wine is so famous around the world? Because we have an appellation d'origine contrôlée, a denomination of uh, origin. That's the, the, the most uh, uh, power of uh, France for the wine. This is the origin. So yes, I trust in the GI in Japan. I would love more GI in Japan. I hope we have more in the future. I don't know. Um, this is one of the key, you're right, to promote the Japanese sake. This is a specific identity because Japanese sake is too large and it's too difficult to, to understand. For example, we know uh, Arima, as you know, Arima here, the GI Arima. It's only Yamada Nishiki in Imeji. So when I taste an Arima, I know it's a Yamada from Imeji. So it's very easy to understand. Um, I love this idea. And I think uh, if we have uh, maybe one or two GI per prefecture, Japanese sake uh, grew up. Oh, interesting. Mm, that's, that's a very interesting comment. And you, you mentioned yeast as one of the constraints or limitations to regionality and and. Fortunately, unfortunately, I don't know, but very often yeast is absent from the definition of a GI. Um, so you don't get that deep. It's complex because um, now Japanese government want to keep the, the keep uh, uh, want to keep an, more than an eye uh, to control the production of sake. And I think yeah. it's not good. In France, uh, the, there is a regulation but not to control. Uh, the government keep uh, the producer free, we can say. And uh, I think... The purpose of it is different. I, you are 100% correct. Because when, when you think about the yeast of sake, 
the the reason why you have all these different yeast that the the brewing society of Japan you know uh, sells to the breweries is not actually the original purpose was not actually to give them these aromas and things it was to create enable them to make sake which was consistent and stable bringing in tax you know every year um that was the kind of the real reason so the other thing as well and i think it's interesting actually with wine correct me if i'm wrong you don't really use different strains of yeast do you uh, for uh, no, no, we use only the specific yeast in the wall, right? Or in the grape, but we don't add uh, well, the great wine, the good wine, right? Because it's in the skin, isn't it? The yeast is natural in the skin, so yeah, it's such a good point because I never, I never really thought about this very much, but it's so true. The thing that is really hindering the the terroir of sake is the yeast, and. It makes sense now that so many brewers kind of want to move away from using these kind of these society yeast because if they if they want to have any kind of expression or sense of place, they, they have to, really. Of course. We know that because um, in the wine, you can compare in Burgundy, for example, a great winery, we use only the, the authentic yeast uh, of the world, of the grape, of the skin. And another one, just uh, uh, use uh, industrial uh, yeast, just put the yeast in, in the tank. Uh, we, yeah. we we lose the soul and we lose the spirit of sake, of course, uh, of the wine. So for the sake, it's the same. But um, I don't know if one day it will be possible. But uh, I, I'm maybe, sure uh, we lose time. I'm sure we lose time. Maybe maybe next year you have to have an ambient yeast category. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> Why not? We could we could probably find you about sixty. I, I bet I could, we could round up about sixty items for you. That might be all. That might be all of them in Japan. But I bet we could find them. But you know, no, that's fantastic. Yeah. Winemakers of Bordeaux and Burgundy and Champagne love sake. Uh, the first year of competition of Cormaster, Bierprat, uh, Maître de Chez, winemaker of Petrus and Cheval Blanc. So it was a super guest. So they love that because they love the way of uh, fermentation. So it's very yeah. interesting. Oh, that's wonderful. So it was a big present to have him. And that will do it for one more episode of Sake on Air. Thanks so much for tuning in. And please do feel free to go ahead and leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts or whatever service it is that you enjoy your episodes of Sake on Air. Go ahead and reach out to us with questions over at questions at Sake on Air. Or please do feel free to follow along with us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at, at Sake on Air. We will be back with plenty of more Sake on Air in the new year. Have a wonderful, safe, happy, healthy holiday. And we can't wait to share more Sake and Shochu-inspired stories with you in 2022. Happy holidays. Happy New Year and come by.